Welcome once again to Benchworld, a podcast designed to provide you with knowledge, experiences, tools, and ideas about venture capital, entrepreneurship, and finance. Interviews and conversations with top-notch global experts will take place every week, hosted by me, Hector Shibata, Director of Investments and Portfolio at AC Ventures, a global corporate venture capital fund an Associate Professor for Entrepreneurial Finance and Venture Capital. Don't forget to follow us for more content on Medium, LinkedIn and Twitter as ACB underscore BC. With no more to say, hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much for being today with us. It, it's a great pleasure. Today we have a, a very great speaker, Natalie Collins. Hey, Natalie. Thank you so much for being today with us. So let's start this fire chat, Natalie. Why don't you tell us a little about yourself, a little about your background, please? Of course. Um, so I started my career as an auditor with Price Waterhouse. Um, but knew pretty quickly that that wasn't something I wanted to pursue in the long term. So um, headed across to Coca-Cola Amatil, hoping that um, it would give me a lot of opportunity. And it certainly did do that. So Coca-Cola Amatil is the local bottler um, in Australia and the region for um, the products of the Coca-Cola company. And so I started out there um, in a number of different finance roles. But um, my career there took me to supply chain, to marketing, um, to procurement, um, and then a number of different corporate innovation roles. Um, and most recently, uh, as co-founder of our uh, corporate venture capital arm, Amital X, um, which was an incredible opportunity. Uh, I'm just about to start a new role, uh, a new executive role with the leading retailer here in Australia, Woolworths, um, looking after their commercial partnerships. Um, I'm also a non-executive director uh, with Centuria Capital. Um, they're a property fund manager and have a number of different investment bonds as well. So financial services. Um, and probably most relevant to all of you, um, I'm also a startup mentor and an angel investor. Wow, that's that's amazing. You have a, a great experience and, 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 and thank you for sharing that. So let's start about venture capital. So... How would you describe, first of all, venture capital and why is venture capital relevant today? So yeah, venture capital is a form of equity financing for startup businesses. Um, and so venture capital firms um, will see an opportunity in an early stage business called a startup. Um, they'll see a kernel of opportunity and it's often in businesses that um, are not yet generating revenue or certainly not profit um, and they will accept a fairly high risk profile um, on that business and invest um, equity into that business. So um, that's what venture capital is, which is different to angel investing. Um, angel investing are, are individual investors such as myself um, who, again, will see a really, really early stage business, often called you know, napkin stage. Um, where often it's it's often pre-revenue, um, definitely pre-profit most of the time, and they'll invest their own money into that business. Um, and then venture capital funding will tend to follow um, after that. You've been, I mean, you, you used to work in a very large corporate in, in Australia. So what, what's more complicated in your mind, being an entrepreneur 
or being an investor in venture capital? Well, I mean, I, I think the entrepreneur has the hard end of the stick. I mean, they're the ones that have to take that idea and work in that business all day, every day. Um, but what's amazing is the passion that they bring to that and the experience generally. They're normally very, very um, yeah, subject matter experts in, in the problem that they're trying to solve. Um, but I think they've got the real challenge because they're really trying to wear multiple hats in any one day, um, you know, going from marketing to sales to business development, um, to investor relations, PR, everything. Uh, so I think that's a really, really challenging role. In saying that, you know, the venture capital piece uh, is challenging too in that they've got to take make um, investment decisions with minimal information. Um, it's different to investing in businesses that have been around for a long time and you can trust the numbers um, and the history that's on the page. Um, with a startup that, that you don't have that, um, the numbers and the forecasts are, you know, as good as nothing really. Um, so there's a lot of other different criteria that you need to take into consideration um, when making that investment decision. So, yeah, I think being a, being the entrepreneur and the founder, I'd say is more challenging, um, but that's not to say being a venture capitalist is an easy job either. And would you say that anyone can become an entrepreneur? I would say anyone can become an entrepreneur, but I think there's a difference between being an entrepreneur and being a successful entrepreneur. Um, so, yeah, the, I think the barrier to entry is very low for, for someone to do just that. Um, but to, to be really good at it, I think you need to have an, a really strong ability to execute. Um, so just having an idea is not enough. Um, you need to be able to execute behind that. You need to have a really sound business model um, so, you know, how, how is your business going to make money um, and why is today the moment in time that is going to be why it will make money? Um, you need to be able to attract a really phenomenal team. So often a business will start with either one founder or a small team of founders. They can't run the business and grow the business on their own. So um, they need to have that ability to attract top talent to help them to build and grow that business. Um, and then, you know, be able to lead a team. That's, again, another skill that you would need as a founder, um, not necessarily in the early days, but as your team grows, you need to have or be able to develop those really strong leadership skills to, to grow that business and lead it over time. Um, and, you know, as I just, you know, alluded to in my last answer, you've got to have that ability to wear multiple hats at any point in time. Uh, and that's not something that everyone can do. So whether it be product development, HR, IR, PR, you know, and have that really strong commercial acumen. Um, you really need to be a, a, a pretty solid human being um, to, be, to become an entrepreneur. And how relevant, for instance, for those that are entrepreneurs, how relevant is to have strong advisors? Is it, is it really relevant to have an advisor with you? Or it really mm. doesn't matter, uh, you know, in order to be successful building the company? I mean, that's a decision for each individual founder, I think, but certainly the founders that I have interacted with, those that I've listened to on, you know, podcasts, all the successful ones that I have um, have heard from have certainly said those advisors and mentors that they've had around them have been instrumental to their success. Uh, and I think it's a matter of, you know, that point around needing to have so many different skills. No one human can be strong in all of those areas. So if you can leverage the expertise of people around you who have 
experience in certain um, aspects or certain disciplines, whether they're legal, um, whether they're subject matter experts, whether they're HR experts, whether they're go-to-market experts, um, I think that can really be a huge factor in how successful that particular business can be over time. Okay. As an investor, obviously you have reviewed, you have spoken with hundreds, thousands of entrepreneurs today. So how would you say, or what are the key personality traits or what are the key characteristics that you know that, that you look into an entrepreneur or makes you say, hey, you know what, I really like this person. I'm gonna invest in this person. I really like this team. I'm gonna invest in this team. Yeah. So the things that I'm looking for, and team is is at the top, definitely. Um, you're, you're wanting to see a real passion from those those founders or that individual founder um, for solving that particular problem that they're trying to solve. So there's a real um, if you can sense that they're in this, to, it's their life's work. I think that's a really strong indicator that they're going to be successful, that they're not just in it for the money. This is a real passion problem for them that they want to solve and they're willing to commit their life to doing that um, is a huge thing that I, I'm always looking for. And it's also their ambition. So, you know, are they thinking small, just the local city that they're in, or are they thinking global? Um, and when they start to think global, like this is, I can really take this somewhere that is hugely appealing. Um, and then, you know, as, I, as I've shared, I want to be able to see that they have the ability to attract great talent in the future um, and the ability to develop into a really strong leader. Um, so that's that's the team component. Um, there's certain criteria that I'm looking for when I'm assessing an opportunity. So team is number one, and that's the criteria um, that I'm looking for. But it's not just about the team, albeit I think it's the most important thing. Um, for me, it's also about the market or the opportunity. It's about the product. And it's about the commerciality of the business. So if we look at each of those one at a time, the market or opportunity, so what is the problem that they're trying to solve? Um, what's the market size of that problem? Do we think it's global? Does it have the potential to be a global business? And a really interesting thing to consider is, are there market forces at play today or trends that we can see that mean that this product could be successful in this moment in time because it's responding to those trends. So why now is a question that we often ask. Um, so that's the market opportunity assessment. Then the product. So what is their solution and how is it different to other alternatives in the marketplace? Um, is it defensible? So is there something that's really competitive about their particular solution that will make it defensible to alternatives that are out there? And what traction do they have with this particular product? So what revenue are they starting to see? What's their customer acquisition like? Is their customer churn? So those sort of metrics we want to start to see around the product. And then commerciality, so the final piece that I'm looking for, how is this business actually going to make money? Um, you know, is there a path to profitability? Because as I said at the beginning, when you're investing as an angel or a VC, the business is often not profitable yet, and that's okay. Um, that's the risk profile that you take on as an investor, but you're investing in the potential of that business. So can we see that there is a path to profitability? And then what's their go-to-market strategy would be the other thing. So how are they going to take this business and grow it over time? Well, interesting. So let, let's go back to market, all right? So sometimes, I mean, 
you know, the market might be very large, but sometimes you're building that something that you really don't know if there's market for that specific product or service. So in, in those cases, how do you measure the market? Mm. I mean, so starting with the market, you need to find product market fit. I don't know if you how familiar you are with that term. Um, the best thing to think, while I've, while I've talked big in all my examples so far, what you need to do to start with as an entrepreneur is think very small, very local, um, but have the ambition to scale and think global. So really what you need to be doing is firstly um, starting with the problem that you're trying to solve and really understanding that problem from your customer's perspective and getting the insights from them. Um, and the best way to do that is to build what's called a minimum viable product which is essentially the smallest possible working version of your thing, whatever it is, your product or service, that you can put in front of your customer for them to experience that and then give you feedback. Um, and then that, that process becomes really iterative. So you put that in front of them, they experience it, they give you feedback, you learn from that feedback, you tweak it, you iterate, you go to market again with a stronger version of that product and you keep going until you have a version of that product that, that a customer is willing to pay for and hopefully pay for more than once. And once you've got that, you have product market fit and that's when investors can start to come on board because they can see you've got traction um, with the market. And so, you know, my advice to any entrepreneur is to go through that process and start really small but with the vision to, for it to be much larger. Um, and so that's how I think about, about product market fit is small and then large and assessing that, you know, as you go. Okay. And for yours, you're talking about the product, right? And the, the, those, those iterations that you need to have uh, establishing direct communication with the customer. But what, what happens if you are building, let's say something for another business, for another enterprise? Sometimes it's really tough to get in the table with a corporate and, and, and make that corporation use your product. It's just a matter of time and, and, and the cycles becomes longer or other certain things that you can do in order to, you know, to, to have that feedback directly from the corporate, from the business and try to improve your product. Yeah, it's a really good question. I, it, there's no doubt that enterprise solutions or B2B solutions are much more challenging um, you know, it's it's easier to start with a B2C product, I think. Um, to your point, you can get it in front of a customer much more easily um, than you can with enterprise-based solutions. But I think the process still remains the same. You know, you've still got to find that that path to market. That I think that's what becomes fundamentally um, the biggest opportunity slash challenge as well is what the go-to-market that you have. So do you have a way into those corporates that can um, help you in those early days? Because you need a few names, um, a few supporters of your product, really, to get, to get you that traction and those early wins to, to give you that leverage and, and step up into the rest of the, the corporate um, landscape. So, yeah, I, I don't think it's a different process, but I acknowledge that it is a more difficult and probably a more lengthy process. Yeah. But I think, I think the opportunity... Uh, is greater as well if you can actually get in the door um, with a B2B solution. Okay. You, you, you used to work in a, in a very large corporate. What are your recommendations for entrepreneurs 
in order to get in front of a corporation and start, you know, building something and especially trying to commercialize that product with the corporate? Hmm. I think there's a few things to consider. Um, so, I mean, finding the decision makers and, and knowing who they are is always a really good place to start. So who can actually make the decision to trial my product um, and, and pay me some money, ideally? Um, the other thing I would say that I have seen work is, is to start small. Again, really have that startup mindset with you um, and try and find a problem that you can help solve with your solution for that business. So the better you can understand your customer, and in this case, a business, um, and their challenges and bring a solution to the table, then, then the more successful you will be. Uh, that was certainly my experience when we were being uh, approached by a number of different startups was if they took the time rather than to come in and just try and sell what their product was, if they took the time to really understand our business and the challenges that we were facing and then put forward a solution to that, um, that was a much more successful approach. And I would recommend doing that on a fairly small scale. So um, not trying to come into the, you know, the executive team or the head of procurement and, and present a massive solution to the business. Go deeper down um, to start with to, to prove your case that you actually have something that can add value to that business. Get some of their, um, the people inside that business um, waving the flag for you and saying these guys have something of value to our business and let them do the hard sell um, internally. That was by far and away um, the most successful approach that I saw. And when do you know that you have already achieved product market fit? Well, when you've got customers that are paying for your product and paying more than once, I would say. Um, so there's, a, there's very little churn. You've got um, increasing, increasing customer acquisition. They're paying for the product. Uh, so you're not just giving it away for free. And then they're coming back and paying again. Okay. And, and you mentioned about the payments. How do you build the monetization system? How do you think about the revenue model at some point in time and when do you think about the revenue model and how to monetize? Do you start thinking at the early stages or you leave monetization for the later stages when you have already grown, when you have a, a stable market, when you have a customer base? I think it's something you need to be thinking about from day one, but but what you, but your actual monetization and revenue model can change over time. So my advice would be not, not to necessarily um, feel like you're stuck with whatever you put up on day one. So the, the most important thing at the beginning is to find product market fit, to so find a product that is solving a problem for a set of customers. Um, so that's the first thing, but be all, always thinking about how you do monetize that. How, how can you, and how you then evolve that over time. Um, and I do think it's really important not to get stuck on a particular business model or revenue model that you've thought of day one, whether that subscription model or whatever it is that you've decided um, early on that can absolutely and should evolve with your business as it grows. Um, and I think of it like I think about most things, you know, test and learn. So try something, 
um, in the early days, particularly when you've got a smaller customer base, um, test a particular price point or a particular revenue model, see if that works. If not, tweak it. Um, bump up the price, see if, if they'll still pay, if they'll come back again for more. Um, it's just another part of the business that you want to apply that startup thinking to, that um, test and learn, iterate uh, sort of process to. Sometimes in investors and especially corporates, they really care about, let's say, EBITDA operating metrics for, or financial metrics uh, as they invest in any, in any business, right? And when they start investing in venture capital, especially corporates, they really don't know how to uh, understand a startup. So how, I mean, when you are doing an investment as a corporate, let's say, or as an angel investor, how relevant is to look into the financials and see when it's gonna be the break-even point and when it's gonna be making really money uh, you know, in terms of operating income or net income. Yeah, it's um, it's a really interesting point you raise, Hector, and I think it's one of the biggest challenges for corporates engaging in this space um, is that they bring a very corporate mindset. And as you've said, investment decisions for corporates are based on EBITDA and all those financial metrics. But when you're investing as a as a corporate venture capital arm. Um, you need to be investing like a venture capitalist. So looking at those sort of metrics that I was talking about before, so customer acquisition, um, customer churn, all of those sorts of things, and, and just believing in the business model, understanding the traction, is that um, customer acquisition rate on a positive trajectory? Um, you know, have they proven product market fit? Can they explain and demonstrate a path to profitability? So these are the things that venture capitalists are looking for, and that should be exactly the same as a, as a CVC, a corporate venture capital arm, um, but it is a muscle that CVCs need to learn to build um, because it's not the way that they normally think. Um, so at Amatolex, for example, um, we, we were very aware that that was not the way that we were trained, um, and so we opted to partner with a local VC um, to help us with that decision making. So we would assess um, strategically whether that business was a good fit. We'd introduce them to our business, you know, as I was saying before, um, the, the people within our business who could assess whether that solution had value. Um, and if we could sort of prove that out, then we'd work with the VC who would do the more um, financial, legal due diligence on our behalf. Um, but at the same time, we were certainly, you know, flexing our muscles and learning that process as we went. And as, a, as an investor, do you need to be a momentum-driven investor or you really need to have conviction in order to invest in any startup? I missed the word you said there, the first word, momentum, was it? Yeah, you, you need to have momentum or you need to have conviction in order to invest in a startup. Oh, I think a bit of both. Um, momentum's great. And then I think you need, a, a lot of it is gut feel, particularly as an angel investor. Um, Angels make decisions, and I think to a degree, venture capitalists too, because it's because the, the hard facts aren't there like they are 
um, when you're investing in in established businesses, um, a lot of it comes down to to gut feel and and that softer assessment around the team and the potential and why now. Um, and so I think the 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 later you are investing on that um, timeline, or the early, maybe I go the earlier you're investing in that timeline, the more it's around gut and just building your own conviction that you think this is a good investment. Um, uh, but but momentum is a good thing too. Okay, and you have invested in in, in you know in in, in startups. Uh, what would you say? Are the key mistakes that typically entrepreneurs do as they start building the startup? I think the key mistake is becoming attached to the solution. So losing sight of, um, uh, I think it's really easy to become so passionate about the business that you're building, um, particularly if there's a physical thing, uh, that you can lose sight very easily of who you're building it for, um, your customer. And so for me, that is by far and away the biggest mistake that can be made is, is just focusing on the product and forgetting about the customer and going out and putting it in front of them, engaging with them, learning from them, making sure that you're interacting with them to take their learnings and make that product even better. Um, in fact, that's the opportunity of an entrepreneur is to build the best product in partnership with your customers and their feedback um, rather than just the thing that you've come up with in your mind, um, which is definitely, you know, a mind of one or two founders is definitely not going to be as strong as the amazing uh, input that you can seek from the people that will ultimately be the user or consumer of your business or service. So it means that you need to be pivoting continuously the business model and the product itself? In the early days, absolutely. Absolutely. And look, that I would say that goes for a long time, you know, even for established businesses now. That's why we got into venture capital um, as a business that had been around for over 100 years with great success. But we knew if we didn't keep an eye on these new technologies and business models that were emerging, that we'd be left behind. So I think it's um, imperative that businesses of any size continue to engage with their customers, continue to look at the latest technology um, to make sure that they're staying ahead of the competition um, and, yeah, protecting and, and building a sustainable business for the future. And as, as an entrepreneur, when do you know that that's not going to work, that you need to cut your losses and stop doing what you are doing and do something different? Look, there's probably a, a few things. Um, uh, number one, if you lose your passion for it, then you should be stepping out of the business. Um, you have to have passion to solve that problem, to take on the role of an entrepreneur. Um, from a financial perspective, you know, the, the term is runway. So how much cash have you got left in the business, the runway, before you're going to run out? Um, and so that's something as an investor that um, you're always looking for. So will this next raise give you at least 18 months runway? Um, and so as a founder, if you can see that you're, you're losing um, momentum, you, you don't have product market fit or you're losing that traction, um, you know, the, the runway, I guess, is the key indicator of timing on when you need, when you're going to have to give up, basically. Um, and so, yeah, it's just the, the cash available to you. Um, you should be familiar with your monthly burn rate. So what, what kind of cash are you burning each month? Um, and that will dictate your runway. 
Uh, and so then, I mean, the other consideration is if you've built a business that is investable um, and you only have a couple of months left worth of runway, but you believe you can turn that business around and put it into growth, then you can pull your investors in and, um, and ask for some bridging finance or re-raise. Um, it's a really timely exercise to go through any raise. So it's, it has to be thought through very strategically around when you do that. You don't want to be raising every six months because you'll never not be raising if that's the case. Um, so, yeah, the, I guess the, the short answer is it, de it depends on your runway um, and the, those metrics and, and where they're looking, where they're projected to go, hopefully up. But if they're heading down, um, you'd need a pretty good plan, business plan in place to turn that business around. And as an investor, would you say you follow the same recommendation? You follow kind of, you know, the company will be raising capital in the next coming months or whatever. So you don't believe anymore in the business and you stop investing or you take a different approach in those cases? I mean, it's expected that businesses continue to raise. Um, you would expect them to raise about every 18 months. So that's just going to fuel, and probably even more frequently than that, it, it just depends on each individual business. Um, but what you're looking for when they're raising is all those um, metrics that they're measuring that tell you that that business is successful or not, and they're different for each business, that they're trending in the right direction, and that they've got a really clear plan on how they're going to use those new funds that are being injected into their business. So, you know, I'm going to raise $10 million on this raise and that's for international expansion. It's to hire um, these, these heads. It's to do this particular bit of product development. Clear, makes sense. Uh, and then as an investor, you're happy to do that. You wouldn't invest into a company uh, whose monthly burn is ridiculous, who's paying um, founder salaries that are, Um, not in line with that stage of, of the business's growth uh, and who doesn't have a clear strategic plan on what they're going to do with that um, fundraising. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I guess, I guess you are absolutely right. Obviously, the top reasons why startups fail, it's as you pointed out, because of they, they cannot raise additional cash. It's about product market fit. And another consideration why they fail It's because they get outcompeted vis-a-vis -vis other startups, other players in the market. So how relevant is to keep track of the competition and, and move fast in, in, this, in this environment? Mm. And I, yeah, that was my point around um, defensibility. So the, the product that you're building, you, you absolutely need to know what's going on, no matter what business you're building. Um, as, a, as a founder, if you, when you're building a pitch deck, one of your slides, certainly one of the things I'm looking for is what's the competition? Who are you up against? And, and what do they have that you don't? Or more importantly, what do you have that they don't? Um, what's your competitive advantage? So, yeah, to, absolutely, you need to have your eye on the competition from day one to forever um, and be making sure that you're protecting that competitive advantage or even better, building a stronger competitive advantage. So what, what would you recommend, you know, to the people that would like to become entrepreneurs at some point in time? Um, so I would firstly say, uh, if that's something that you are really passionate about doing, then I would say do it. I'm a big believer in having no regrets in life. So, um, 
I would say jump in. However, there's a few things to to be wary of, and hopefully you've you've you know had a few listened to a few of those from what I've shared. Um, I would suggest reading The Lean Startup by Eric Rees, who um, takes you through a really solid process um, for founding a startup and the process that Lean Startup methodology. Um, it's a really good read and um, great for anyone starting out, uh, particularly a tech business, but not necessarily just tech. Um, there's a couple of great podcasts out there to listen to as well. Um, I don't know if any of you are familiar with the 20 Minute VC, Harry Stebbings, um, really immersing yourself in the world of venture capital, startup founders. He does an extraordinary job of that. Uh, really, really great listen. And you can learn from uh, the view of venture capitalists, but also the view of successful founders. So he's had, you know, Open Door, Spotify, uh, Uber, all sorts of founders on that show. Um, and yeah, it's a really phenomenal listen. So just a great way to immerse yourself in that world. Um, I'd also, you know, look at the opportunity of local accelerator programs. Um, I had the privilege of running the accelerator for Coca-Cola Amatil. Uh, and then I'm now a mentor on um, the leading accelerator here in Australia. And so those programs are just uh, hard to get into uh, generally, but if you've got a really great idea and accepted, they are an amazing way to literally accelerate the growth of your business and to surround yourself with um with a number of different mentors uh, and advisors who can help you on that journey. Uh, so that would be something to look up, uh, look up. And then find a mentor. Um, so someone, ideally, I would suggest that would be a founder who's sort of 12 to 18 months ahead of you in their journey, um, who can, if nothing else, be someone to have a coffee with and just to chat to and, and share your experience. But um, hopefully someone that has been through the experience only fairly recently, just ahead of you, and can help advise you on some of those pitfalls or things to watch out for, um, and just encourage you along the way. Wow, that's amazing, thank you. So maybe finally, Natalie, can you become a great investor without being an entrepreneur? Oh, well, that's something I'm trying to do myself right now, Hector. <laughs> so I hope the answer is yes. Um, Look, my experience is uh, venture capital firms do tend to like a founder experience um, when they're looking for those that uh, they're bringing into their investing team. But I think that is changing over time. I think they're starting to realise the benefit of broader experience. Um, if, for me, I think uh, at this, the stage that I'm at in my career, it certainly makes sense for me to look at investing from an angel perspective. Um, and I think if you, like with anything in life, if you surround yourself with people that are smarter than you um, and connect yourself into the right opportunities, then you can be successful. Um, so for me, that looks like um, leveraging some syndicates at the moment as I start that journey. Um, and I have found some incredible syndicates here in Australia that are um, the, the investors in those syndicates are just phenomenal people with a lot of experience some of them ex-founders um, some of them have been investing for a long time so um, I'm certainly taking the experience that I've had as a CVC um, but also you know combining that with the experience that I've had um, multidisciplinary experience over two decades in enterprise which I think is also quite useful um, and pulling all of that together to hopefully build out a portfolio that will be a success one day but as you know um, these are long-term 
plays. So I won't probably won't know for five to ten years <laughs> whether I'm any good at it. Um, but yeah, that that's my thinking. I, I hope so. Hector is the answer. Yeah, 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 yeah. I guess I guess you're absolutely right. I do believe that uh, in order to be an entrepreneur, a successful entrepreneur, you require certain skills. And, and in order to be a successful investor, you require other skills. So, mm. so I'm a believer of that as well. So we'll, we'll see in the next coming years if we are in the right direction or not. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. So That's thank you so much, Natalie, for your time. It's a pleasure speaking with you. Oh, my absolute pleasure. It's been lovely to spend a little bit of time. I hope um, what I've shared has been of value. Absolutely.